0: Well, welcome to Lord's Day at Westmount Bible Chapel. Uh, This is, of course, not the normal way that we would gather together. But of course, these are not normal times. Uh, But saying that, we are very thankful that we still can gather virtually. We can do this on Lord's Day morning, and we're grateful that you're here with us. So we want to begin our morning in prayer giving thanks to God again for the technology that he's given us that we can still do this in spite of the circumstances. So why don't we open in prayer and again go to our great God, help him or help us to settle our hearts as we prepare to look at his word. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, you are our shepherd. As your children, we will never even enter into a state of being in need. Forgive us as we grumble, for you make us lie down in green pastures. Forgive us as we fret, for you lead us beside still and calm waters. Forgive us for seeking soul rest here on earth, for you alone restore our soul. Almighty Father, you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In times such as these, Lord, help us to remember this certainty, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is nothing to fear, no evil, no virus. Why? For you are with us. We look to your rod and your staff, for they give us comfort like no earthly peace. Gracious Father, you prepare a full table before us, before our enemies, as they encircle us. Your sovereign hand that directs all things pauses to anoint our heads with oil and to provide us with a cup that is abundant in overflow. Merciful Father, surely goodness and your covenant steadfast love will follow us each and every day of our life until the very end, whenever that may be. And then when you call us home or return to us, We shall dwell in that home, your house, O Lord, forever. It is in our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you, Westmount, to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Actually, it's Galatians 6 that we'll be in. I have to catch up here. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5 which I will read to start our time together. Galatians 6, 1 through 5, starting in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Beloved, caring for one another is the hallmark of God's people. Many of us are familiar with those one another passages, right, in Scripture. You think about Romans 12, by one way of example, it gives you so many of those one another's that we know well. Now, just because it is our mark and our mandate, it doesn't mean that we're always good at it as God's people. In fact, our habit of not being there for one another is as old as Earth's oldest family. That's how old it would be. Think about Adam standing on the sidelines, not there for Eve, sitting back when he should be to be there for one another, hardly watching out for one another in that garden scene. And what about their children? We barely leave the next generation. And what about Cain's response to God's question? Do you remember in the wake of that first murder... Cain's infamous response when he's called out by God in Genesis 4 9, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, what does my brother's concern have to do with me? That's what he was saying. And those words, if you think about the pictures that you're seeing today, do they not just echo out of grocery store aisles? What does my brother's concern have to do with me? And that's a vivid reminder. When you think about the pictures you're seeing on the news and social media, maybe those grocery line fights, whatever it may be, it's a vivid reminder for us church that neglecting one another is a picture outside the church. That's a picture outside the church. It should not be the practice of those inside it. Why? Because we are God's people, commissioned straight from his character. We're children of the one God who revealed himself to his people, saying this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6. That same loving God, in the heart of his life-giving instruction to his people, also said this, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. However, that command, that law of God's people to love one another, hardly became the identifier of God's people. In the generations that followed, we saw anything but that. Think with me about the times of the judges. It was not one another. What What was it instead? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What about in the times of the kings? It was not one another. What was it? It was against one another, north versus south. It was hardly loving one another. From exodus to exile, it was anything but the character of God flowing through God's people to love one another. Ongoing evidence that God's people could not do it. Love was not, it would seem, in them. But love is who God is, and that is why, in the wake of all that selfish inability, God sent his Son into the world, because, precisely because, he loved the world. He loved others outside of himself. That's why he sent his Son. And that Son came to live, and to do, and to fulfill what we couldn't, all in love And the result, through the Son, through Jesus Christ, his work and his love, we saw love fulfilled so that we could fulfill love as his followers. Because of Christ, we are new creations with new capacities to love one another. We have his spirit in us, bearing fruit when we walk by that spirit. That's where we were last week. And that's what we saw last week in verse 22. Love now is the governing ethic. It is that for God's people. Head of the list, in fact, when you look at the passage we looked at last week, the fountainhead from which all the fruit of the Holy Spirit flows. And we'll see this week in these verses, it's love that has an output in the church. And it is to one another. Now, You may approach love in the church when you think about that, as we set our minds on this text this morning. When you think about love in the church, and you might think immediately of a kind word, maybe a warm meal, a deed done, right, to love one another. You may even think about laying down rights, why we're not meeting, why we're doing this today, because of one another. You may think of those things, and that is good and right. That certainly is love. Let's be clear about that. However, what we're going to see in this text today goes much deeper than this. Much deeper. What this text reveals is love that acts when our brother sins. It's not a passive love. What we'll see here today is love that shares the load. Love that gets messy, if need be. And ultimately, what we'll see in this passage Is love that is accountable. Love that is accountable. Love is from Christ, given by Christ to be employed by us for his people and for his glory. That is the deep, penetrating, powerful, and vital love of Christ on display here. So let us look. We're going to see four things in this passage two charges, two cautions. Given to us here that inform our love for one another. The first is in verse 1. Look at it with me. We would say it is this Restore one another. Restore one another. Verse 1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you're reading from a King James, it says this, If a man be overtaken. That really communicates the sense there, right? This passive sense of the word. This is the transgression, the sin, that is not necessarily planned or thought out. And that's important. This is error that overtakes one, often unaware and slowly. In fact, we could say this, This is the stuff of the backslider, not so much the rebellious. Get this right out of the one word even. This transgression is the stuff of our blind spots, the sin we often miss and that we can't see. Here in this verse, we're provided with a measure for our misses and our errors. And what is it? It is one another, one another and clear prescriptions for one another in just this one verse. In fact, if you look at that verse, by way of quick survey, you will see the what, the who, and the how. Right there in one verse. And all of this around restoring a brother caught up in sin. So first, let's look at the what. The what. The apostle says here, restore him. That word restore means to put in order Literally, to restore to the former condition. So what does that mean? That word means we act. That word means we act. It doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. That word means we restore. It doesn't mean we condemn. It means we restore. And that word is directed to, look at it, directed to him, to her, to brother, to sister, to the one that is caught in the transgression. It doesn't mean we do something to someone else. We go and tell someone else. We gossip to someone else. That's not what it's saying. Restore him. Go to him. Christian restore him means we do something in love for our brother and sister going to them in love. Christian love. Restore him means we recognize, as James 3.2 says, that we all stumble in many ways. That's a truth. And as such, we will need to get back on track when we stumble, because we all do. And here, we are provided by God's divine providence help in that. Church, this is what we do when we see a brother or sister caught in a transgression. We act in love to restore him, to restore her, to put them back in order. So that's the what. What about the who? You see the who there. Paul says here, you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. Well, What does that mean? Does that mean only some? Does that mean that there's a hint here of the Christian elite? Does that suggest some upper tier of Christians, the badge-wearing Christians, the transgression police? What does this mean, you who are spiritual? It doesn't mean any of those things, but sadly, I would submit to you, Westmount, this is how this directive has been handled so often and so sad. And the sin compounds when it is handled and approached this way. No, church, Paul is saying nothing more than what he said already. This is where we track with the context. And what has he said? Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit, which you've seen over the past few weeks that some Christians do walk by the Spirit. And the fruit is evident, walking by the Spirit in love, keeping in step with the Spirit. That's true. That's a spiritual walk, right? But we've also seen the converse, and that is Christians that don't. The works of the flesh, walking not in love, But as we refer to this vice list again, walking in enmity, in strife, in rivalry, such ones, I would submit to you, are not walking spiritually and are not spiritual people because they're not walking in step with the Spirit. And hence, they have no business, they don't have a place to restore when they're working in the flesh. In fact, commands like this are avoided now, because the church has an unfortunate legacy of too many people looking to restore in the flesh. In fact, we wouldn't call it restoration when it's in the flesh. We would call it rebuke, harsh, arrogant. Not enough are doing this spiritually. The text says, look at it, you who are spiritual. It simply means this, that the restoration should be done by those that are walking by the Spirit, living spiritually. And as such, they are in the right place with God, in step with God and with neighbor to bring them back. Now, I know what you're thinking. You have a question, you have a thought, and I want to submit one caution on this. This command also is not an excuse for people to say something like this. Well, I'm just not spiritual enough. Or that's not me. Beloved, before you cling to that, remember that to claim that you are not spiritual is a simultaneous claim to what? To say that you are of the flesh. You're of the flesh. Particularly, what have we learned in our study? Look at verse 17 again. We look at the absolute uh, antithesis between the spirit and the flesh. So you're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh, there is no in between. So we walk by the Spirit. We put on Christ. And all of us then, heeding the commands of Scripture, being obedient to Scripture, can be and should be spiritual ones that restore brothers and sisters. So we've looked at the what, the who, and finally the how in this verse. The how. How do you restore a brother? Middle of verse 1 says this, "...in a spirit of gentleness." This should trigger our minds to the fruit of the Spirit from last week. I pray that you hear a word like gentleness, and it takes you back to the fruit of the Spirit. That same gentleness, look at the word in verse 23, that kind of spiritual gentleness. In other words, this is not restore harshly, restore with a wagging finger. No, this is restore by the example that Christ gave. And what did we say about Christ's gentleness? We said it's hardly the the stuff of weakness, right? Or or being um, faint of heart and all of these different things. No, this is strength under control. Strength under control. This is the Philippians 2, humility. Gentleness that gets low and meek to raise another up. That's what we're talking about here. But that brings us to the caution to the end of this verse. Look at the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Even those walking by the Spirit, those understanding the fruit of the Spirit, such ones looking to rightly restore their brother, still need to be on guard. In our efforts as spiritually right as they may be, are still efforts undertaken with that remnant within us, that remnant, remember, of unredeemed nature. It's still in us, the flesh. A flesh that, if we're not careful, is susceptible to temptation. So we are vigilant. We are vigilant. Restoration is no light matter, and we don't enter it lightly. But listen, we do enter it. We do enter it, because the Bible calls us to love one another this way. Restoring brother this way. That's the charge in verse 1. Now let's look at the charge in verse 2. And we would deem it this, bear one another's burden. Bear one another's burden. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let us first consider the assumptions that are just stated plainly in the verse. Let's just consider those first. First, this verse assumes that we all have burdens. Do you see that? This verse just assumes that all of us have burdens. I want to submit to you this morning, Westmount, it is nothing less than pride that says this. I don't need anyone's help. I'm just fine. I don't need anybody's help. That's nothing less than pride. And if that is true in the best of times, how much more true is that today? When this virus is forcing us all onto our own islands, right? I mean, it's forcing us there against even our wills, burdens and all. So that means we are being isolated, burdens and all. Second assumption in this verse, it assumes that we are not meant to carry them alone. Do you see that? This verse just assumes that. We're not meant to carry burdens alone. Paul doesn't just say, yes, we all have burdens, and you know what? That's just too bad. We really are burdened people, and it's just a tough thing. No, we all have burdens, look at it, all of us, and he says there is relief. I mean, can there be anything that uh, gives more hope when you're burdened to know that relief is coming? I'm struck by the reports coming out of Italy where a country is basically falling apart, the hospital infrastructure is falling apart, and I was reading an article this week how the medical staff heard that there was an organization coming in to erect mobile hospitals for them. And before it even hit the ground, they just said it gave them buoyancy. They were uplifted to know people are actually thinking of us and coming. You have a burden, and it's weighing you down, and you just know help is on the way. I would submit to you that's what your brothers and sisters want to know, especially as we live on these islands in such times. Help is on the way. Thirdly, the third assumption, this verse tells us, look at it, it is our responsibility, Christian. It's our responsibility to ease one another's burdens. We are that mobile hospital. It's our responsibility to do that. That relief, and and think with me, is not from ourselves, in a sense, as much as we are to go and do, and we'll get to that, but it's not from ourselves because we know, Christians, that's impossible, especially in times like this. It's not from government. Government can give helpful things, but it's limited that relief is by way of another. and That relief we bring to each other. When you think about in times like this, we feel very limited. We feel the very weight and the burden itself that we cannot do anything. And this brings us to the very important truth of who really bears the burden. Christian, Christ alone can bear that burden. You will say, well, wait a minute. In one sense, this is saying we go and we bear the burdens. But then you're saying, the Bible would say that only Christ can bear the burdens. How is that? Yes, only Christ alone can bear the burden. However, one of the ways that he bears the burden is through others. That's the way Christ works, through his body. Through you, bearing one another's burdens, Christ is bearing the burden. That is why your brothers and sisters are precisely called the body of Christ. His hands, his feet, because they do his work. And beloved, that's you too. Bearing for Christ, looking to the interests of others, giving of self to others, loving others, just as your Savior has done before you. Which, by the way, is not only a new ethic, But it's also an old one for God's people as well. You look throughout the Old Testament, this is what God says over and over again. We talked about that off the top. But now, it is new in the sense that God has enabled his people. He has laid down his life for his people. And he has inaugurated the new covenant. And he has enabled his people to live and love the way that he does. That is why Paul says by doing this, look at verse 2. At the end, by doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. We've spoken of law so much in Galatians, have we not? And here we see it pop up now in a very different context. And note this, this is not the law of Moses. It says the law of Christ. And we know a number of reasons why it can't be the law of Moses, not just the uh, sense of the term or the label of the law of Christ. Secondly, we have the whole letter that we've been studying. Telling us about the inability of the law of Moses, in one sense, for salvation and justification. No, Paul deliberately references the greater law and the greater commandment here. The law of Christ's followers expressed by Jesus. Do you remember that in John 13, 34? He said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Yes, that's a commandment in the era of grace. That's the law of Christ. A commandment not given, and this is so important, a commandment not given to gain life, but a commandment given to live life. That's the law of Christ, to live life. Love again here, the governing ethic, the true morality. Hence, the law of Christ. The law of Christ is really the example of Christ. There it is. If we could say it simply, the law of Christ is the example of Christ. I love the way Tom Schreiner puts it. He says this, I quote, When believers carry the burdens of others, they behave as Christ did and fulfill his law. In this sense, Christ's life and death are the example of love. End quote. To love, then, Christian, is to imitate Christ, which is everything from Philippians 2, condescension, right? We know, we've looked at that so many times, the self-denying, the self-giving of Christ, right through to John 13, the foot-washing, the other-serving, and all the loving example of Christ in between. In Christ, beloved, we bear one another's burdens, So that's two charges of love. Now we're given two cautions about love. Turn to verse 3. we We're told to test our own work. Let's look at it. Paul pauses here with his encouragements to love one another, and he feels necessary, and it is necessary, to give us two cautions. The first one is in verse 3. He says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. Now, this may seem like a sudden gear shift here. However, it is far from that. Think for a moment of the love that we noted last week, that love of God, that agape love, that is by definition self-giving. It's others-focused. So if that is what true love is, what could be a direct threat to that? If that's what true love is, that's self-giving, think with me, what could be a direct threat to that kind of love? Westmount, it's us. We can threaten that kind of love. And our natural bent, not to be others-focused, but to be self-focused. You see how we can sabotage that love. In fact, I'd submit to you, that's a love killer. We can be with our focus on ourselves. And that is precisely what Paul has in view here. When we shift the camera lens to ourselves... And it makes sense, I would submit to you, that Paul addresses this here. Because verse 3, if someone thinks they are something, in other words, if they're focused on who they are and on themselves, then it takes their attention off what? Others. And what others need. And loving them rightly. Yet we see here that self-focus not only impedes fulfilling the law of Christ. But it's even more, hence this caution. It's even more than that. Look at what he says at the end. We see it as self-deception. Paul says he deceives himself, that one that thinks he is something, but he is nothing. So in our self-focus, not only are others not loved, but look at this, we are deceived. In our self-focus, others are not loved and we're deceived. And is this not true? Self-focus always deceives. Think with me for a moment of our self-focus moments. It always deceives. I want you to think about in these times that we're in now, the hoarders and the hiders, right? They sit, they analyze every single news item, whether it is true or whether it is false, through the grid of what? Themselves. And what is that question that looms when they do that and all of these fears and anxieties build? How can I preserve myself? How can I preserve myself? This is the narrative, right? It is far from how can I help others. And again, empty shelves uh, amplify that. And the deception is this. We can't preserve ourselves. There is nothing we can do to help ourselves. That's the deception just like the deception in self-focus that tells us that we are something when we are nothing. And this is precisely why, friends, the most humble are the most helpful. The most humble are the most helpful. It's been said, and I agree with this, that those who love and help others are the most conscious of who they are not. I absolutely agree. And what do they say? What do you you hear from those people? Uh, It was nothing. Oh, I'm really not much at all. I mean, I just, right? That's what you hear. I'm nothing. That is why you often hear the proud say things like, after all I did for you. You see the contrast. The loving understand, as Paul suggests here, they are not something, but they are lowly. They are lowly. Now, of course, we need to say that doesn't mean they, or we, are worthless. We are image bearers of the one true God. We hold that doctrine close and tight. But That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, it means that our impressions, our impressions of ourselves, need to be checked biblically. This is what happens to our vision when we fail to put on Christ and his love. And Paul offers a help here. Look at verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. The apostle says, let each, one, let each one of us test our work. And he's saying exactly what it looks like there. Yes, let's put it to the test. Put it to the test. And that's what we do, right? When we want to gauge the authenticity of something, what do we do? We test it. We test it to see if it's the real deal. And this is exactly the same thing. Let us test our own work, as Paul says. Now, a clarification, want to make sure we're clear here. This is not introspection. This is not intense self-scrutiny. This is not navel-gazing or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about here at all. Instead here, Paul is referring to the healthy biblical call for self-examination. This is self-examination if we were to define it, that checks one's thoughts, attitudes, and actions against the will of God and the love of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. And this is all over the Scriptures. This is what Paul similarly calls the Christians to do before they start accusing one another or accusing him. Second Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourself. This is what Paul calls Christians to do before they remember the table. First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 28, examine yourself. And here Paul calls Christians to self-examine for the purpose of love. For the purpose of love. And here's the thing, when we do that rightly, we see ourselves for who we truly are. The verse says our boasts then in work can only be of ourselves when we esteem it against the Bible and accurately And beloved, the point here is not self-congratulation, but it's self-realization. This is not boasting because uh, of others who are doing worse than we are, right? So then we look at them and say, okay, well then I'm doing okay. That's not what we're talking about. We are prone to this measuring stick though. My work is not as bad as his or I'm not so bad as her. We, We employ this measuring stick so often. And church, the Bible, though, has never promoted such a measure. That's worldly measure. In fact, you think about how many people will employ that same measuring stick on the day of judgment. I wasn't as bad as everyone else. But no, that's not a biblical measuring stick at all. Instead, this here is honest self-assessment in light of God's word and in light of the love of Christ, our example. That is always sobering for us, Christian, And especially in light of what Paul says next. Look at verse 5. He says, For each will have to bear his own load. Now, I know you'll look at that and you'll tell me, wait a minute, just three verses ago, we were told to bear one another's burden. Now we're being told that we'll have to bear our own load. What's going on? Well, two things that this text will tell us in response to that. First, in both of those passages, that we would look at for bearing loads. Paul does speak of bearing under, but these are two very different weights. Look at verse 2. The weight in view there that our brother or sister needs help with is an oppressive or a heavy weight. It is one they cannot bear on their own. That word behind that, that phrase, that context there, is for the purpose of helping others. A very different word completely than the one you see in verse 5. Here in verse 5, the load in view is a personal load. And I want you to think of a backpack. That's the load in view, like one's own personal sack. So these are two very different loads with very different purposes. So that's one cue in the text. Let's look at the second. Look at the first word of verse 5. It says, four. We've learned so much, have we not, about these words that are so vital to connect verses and passages. And that, of course, that little word tells us that whatever is said in verse 5 is connected to verse 4. And, of course, the purpose of verse 4 was not that oppressive load of our neighbor. No, we just talked about what? Testing ourselves. Verse 2 is an entirely different context. It looks outwardly. However, this phrase, this first word in verse 5, links us to what we just talked about. And what is that? Our personal load, our own backpack. That load, that's our work, our work of love, our work of Christ as his own. And each of us, loved ones, will bear that load alone. That's our accountability to the law of Christ. That personal load that no one else can carry. And that load that looks forward to the day of account. The purpose of that account, of course, is not final judgment. We need to be clear. That's not the purpose of that load. Praise God, that matter is sealed. That matter is sealed. We are saved, justified in Christ, eternally secure in Christ, forever His. Amen, and praise God. Know this account with this load is the personal load that we open up before Christ on that day. And track with me, that load simply answers the questions that we see Jesus ask on that day. For example, in Matthew 25, that load answers this question, What did you do with my gift? How did you live out the salvation I freely gave to you? This is the work revealed on the foundation of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. That is our load, that is our pack to bear. In Westmount, the temptation to forsake that load, I would say to you in such times, is great. In the environment we're in today, the temptation to forsake our pack and our load is tremendous, tremendous. You watch the world unravel around you, and what do you want to do with your pack? You don't want to haul it. You want to crawl into it. There's a tremendous temptation to just get in your pack and hide. But Christian, that is not the purpose of your load. It wasn't given to you for that. Yes, it is for you to bear, but note this, for you to bear on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that means this. Let's put an arrowhead on this as we close. It means this. We bear by walking by the Spirit. We bear by restoring our erring brothers and sisters, fellow children of God. We bear by bearing one another's burdens, those in the body of Christ. That is bearing that fulfills love and the law and the example of Christ. Church, your brothers and sisters need you all the more as their burdens increase. Now is not the time to abandon our load, but to bear each other's burdens as we're commanded in this text. May we do so, church, by the mercy of God, the love of Christ, and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray as we come to a text like this, feeling very incapable feeling very fragile in times such as this, Lord. We feel the weight. We feel the burden, if for no other reason of our own packs, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to realize, Lord, that whatever we bear today, we bear on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are saved in him. We are secure in him. Everything we are and have is in him. Enable us, Lord, to bear that load, to bear that pack that looks to bear one another's burden. Help us to love one another. Help us to apply this text, Lord, to our lives, especially in the times that we're in. And God, we know we cannot do this on our own. We know that we can only do so by the work of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, Lord, and your love poured out first and foremost to us. God, help us to live in light of that, to keep in step with the Spirit, Lord, and to love our brothers and sisters in this. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. I leave you with this benediction from Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Amen.